Welcome to Season 4, Episode 23 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Max Easton. Max is a writer, and his new book, Paradise Estate, is out now from Giramondo. Welcome back to the show, Max. Thanks for having me back, Ben. It's really nice to be back again. It's really nice to chat with you. And um, unfortunately, this time via Zoom, but um, it's been lovely chatting with you in person uh, over the last year. But last time we spoke on the podcast was February 2022, which seems like ages ago. It was just after the launch of Magpie Wing. Tell us about life in Sydney and how's that been the last year and how's the response been to Magpie Wing? Yeah, it's been a funny one because it was that came out September 2021. Yeah. Um, we launched it. So it was still in lockdown, Sydney lockdown. Launched it in December. <clears throat> and then it sort of just had this really slow but very long tail. Um, and then, yeah, it got listed for the Miles Franklin. So it kind of had this extra burst. Mm. I think like a lot of people found out about it for the first time after that too. So then it's sort of been, yeah, just like this little trickle kind of thing. Like it was still kind of trickling up until the publication of this one, like the odd email from someone who just just found it at the library kind of thing. So, yeah, it's been an interesting interesting year and a half, two years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, huge congratulations on the Miles Franklin, like, shortlisting, because oh, long listing, wasn't it? Long, yeah. Long. That's still that's still good. <laughs> it, it placed seventh, I think, in the end. Okay, that's not bad. Because the twelfth one got disqualified, so <laughs> at least eleventh best of the year by those metrics. <laughs> well, that's very good. I was thinking about this because when we met, we met in person at the launch of Magpie Wing at that bowls club, and um, I remember you telling me about you writing this book and um, you starting this book and writing it by hand and being really into it. And you told me about the idea for the book. And do you want to tell us about, I guess, finishing that first book and then jumping straight into this second one, um, which we'll talk about very soon, Paradise Estate? Yeah. So um, before, well, like today, I went back and listened to our first interview because I'm really worried about repeating myself, <laughs> like in interviews and that kind of thing. And I was like, um, be yeah, listening to our interview then, I was saying that, yeah, the week of the launch, like kind of went past this, house that was for lease this really bizarre sort of rotting share house mm. that was flanked by apartment blocks and that kind of thing um yeah and that was a setup for the book and I think even in the interview I sort of mentioned there's like yeah I got this like Italian character I want to explore mm. his like like part-time rugby league type stuff and a bit of a split personality thing and then afterwards like while I was listening to that interview from two years ago it's like exactly what I ended up writing which is bizarre and I kind of strange to imagine that yeah I kind of can't believe I was writing it at that time mm. yeah by hand when I talked to you about it um <clears throat> but yeah we just spent just spent that time working on it writing on it by hand and like piecing it together and um yeah all with the setup of this share house that I saw that day that we met <laughs> amazing cool well, I want to move on to the book itself. It's called Paradise Estate, which we've discussed. That's the name that the housemates all give to the house. But it's one of the most current books I've ever read. It feels like the book is almost in real time. Helen, who is, she was one of your characters um, from Magpie Wing. 
and she's newly single. She's looking for a place in Sydney's insane rental market. And she ends up finding five housemates and a house in the shadows of these blocks of flats, like you were saying. And it's basically in this kind of inner west of Sydney. It's in the path of developers. And what I want to do is I want to start with you telling us about Helen, because a lot of people probably haven't read The Magpie Wing, but you can totally jump straight into this book without having read that. Do you want to tell us about her life just and following like what her life was like following the magpie wing and how you we find her in the beginning of this novel yeah so helen um the gap between the two books is about i think it's about nine months or so yeah um and so i intentionally kind of left that nine months sort of blank um and kind of backfilled it in a way mm-hmm. yeah i think like you can pick up the book with Helen in the second book and know that she's been through some shit mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and kind of like sense it like in that character. But um, yeah, like I like the idea of you being able to read that second book and going back to the first and almost, yeah, backfilling it that way. And then mm-hmm. also the feeling that you would get by having this blank, this blank nine months mm-hmm. um, in her life. And so like Helen sort of grew up, grew up in Southwest Sydney um, with sort of a bit of a fractured family unit um, and a brother who she's really close with. Um, it's sort of about, you know, like the magpie wing like follows them growing up. It's like a 25-year time span. And so she goes from playing like junior rugby league into sort of discovering punk music and um, kind of like partying around Sydney. And then by the end of the book, she kind of couples off Um for about seven years. So mm. once you pick up, pick her up with the paradise estate, the relationship is broken. Um, and she's sort of share housing for the first time in a really long time in a mid thirties or the back end of a mid thirties. So it's kind of like you get dumped straight into her picking up the pieces on a, on a number of different fronts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's not in a great place when we start this book, she picks up these housemates and this house, which is, it's it's a bit of a shithole, let's face facts. It's, uh, you know, we have lots of the issues of, of, I guess, these kind of share housing places. They're surrounded by flats. It's not the nicest house. Like, all of the things are falling apart. There's moles on the walls and things like that. But she finds these flatmates and she slowly kind of, I guess she vets them and the members of the house vet these flatmates as we go along. I want to talk about the other housemates. So we've got Rocco, who's my favourite. He's an ex-rugby league player, like you were saying. He's trying to make the Italian team for the World Cup. Then we've got Sonny, Beth, Nathan, and Alice. The place is in Helston Park. Do you want to tell us about those central characters? Yeah, so they came really quick. Sonny is in the first book very mm. briefly, um, and they're sort of really close with Helen's brother at this, It's you know, barely even in the first book. But um, I remember writing them at the time and just being like, Oh, I just didn't get the time to really explore Sunny at all towards the end of the magpie wing because it was just it was too late in the book, which was part of like when I started thinking about writing another book mm-hmm. um, and having all these ideas and trying to invent new characters, um, knowing that I could bring them through um, was really freeing. So Sunny is sort of this um, junior, kind of almost wanted to be an academic dropped out of a PhD program because of an argument with their supervisor, mm. um, punk musician who lives in the shed because they can't afford to live in the house and is pretty much just wants any space to 
magazine and uh, make cassette tapes and sort of build this little archive of Sydney punk music mm. in the back in the back shed. And sort of that's their purpose, you know. Um, Beth is kind of an old art friend of Sonny's. Um, and she's probably like, she's the youngest in the house and she's probably a bit thinly drawn in a way, but, but she's kind of a, everyone's kind of a foil for each other as well. Mm-hmm. So playing off each other. So Beth's main driving force is just kind of trying to work and agitate and have a good time while she's like coming in and out, like a bit of out, out of phase with the housemates because she's a bartender and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the couple. So like Alice and Nathan have kind of appeared in the house, kind of plugged in to fill the room and maybe the least fetid of the, of the house because they're kind of, mm-hmm. they have money and they're a couple so they can just get shove in the master bedroom and like, and cover rent. Yeah. Um, so Alice is a research scientist and Nathan's kind of a, history tutor um they're both devout socialists um very it was a lot of self-belief i'd say Mm. um and then dale is sort of appears in the start of the book um he's just kind of there because he's friends with nathan and he he gets kind of force fed into the house as well yeah so and then rocco comes later so (laughs) Mm. so there's like a lot of trying to fit a lot of personalities into that house and into that book was something I really wanted to challenge myself with. Mm. And I think the way that they kind of like um, oppose each other and slowly start to form their own little factions through the book was like kind of the, because the book doesn't have a real clear plot, I don't Mm. think, but it does have this sort of slow feeling of like the splintering and the gathering of the different factions of the house as it kind of evolves through the year. Yeah. I want to talk about time frame in this book and also about location. With time frame, this book is set over a year and it's basically set through 2022 um, for the most part. We do get um, a little bit into 2023 as well, I think. But um, but essentially setting a book over a year, we really get to see the development of these characters and some of the some of the background stuff going on in Australia because this period in Australia, I think, has been extremely divisive and extremely uh, interesting in terms of a lot of the political aspects of it. I want to talk about the politics of the book later, but do you want to just tell us about setting the book in this time frame? Yeah. Um, I really wanted to do the experiment of setting, to write the book in the year that I set it. Because mm. um, <clears throat> that's real, it's a challenge. It's a real challenging thing to do because um, I had some ideas of things that might happen, but um, I had to let, the events of the year kind of affect what was happening in the book as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, like I wrote every most, almost every day, just took notes about what was happening. Um, so some of the things were happening in Sydney or, or Australia or, or the, the world was like, you know, it started with this La Nina event where it was just raining constantly for three months. Mm. Yeah. Um, then kind of this, like this lingering threat of COVID so it's sort of everything's opened back up again and everyone's getting sick. Like it's mm-hmm. not missing anyone this time. Yeah. So there's this weird kind of like chaos to that and the insecurity of that. Then the, yeah, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the death of the Queen, the death of a bunch of other political figures like Abe and Gorbachev. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, yeah, just this like bizarre descent through the year was something that like I obviously couldn't plan for but had to respond to. Um, 
so yeah, everything that's in there is kind of selectively picked from the years it went. There's a lot of stuff I'd left out, obviously, but mm. um, yeah, really challenging writing process and uh, really fun and thrilling because it felt like you could fall over at any time. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about that as well because this feels to me like you were writing this as I was reading it almost. Yeah. It is so it is so present is unbelievable. Like the, this weekend, I finished the book this weekend. This weekend we had the referendum for the yeah. yes, for the yes, no slash uh, referendum, whatever we're going to call it, um, about recognizing Indigenous people in the constitution, which was resoundingly uh, rejected by the Australian public, unfortunately. But um, but this is this features in your book as well. Um, what I want to ask you about is is how you write a book within this time period and make it so present and get it out to the world in a, in like such a timely manner. Like it just feels like it did. you could have been writing this up to the day that, you know, that it got published. Yeah. Yeah. And because like the last edits were um, July, I think, mm. um, but it was really important for me too to like not go because the problem I was having, like I would write something and a character would be like, well, this is going to happen sarcastically or something and then it would actually happen yeah. as the year went on so it was sort of like some of those things I couldn't keep in mm. but, um I think the real challenging part especially for something like the voice uh, referendum um was like I had to really they caught the conversation that they had was in September 2022 so I mm. needed to keep the feeling of September 22 in there even mm. though I knew it was going to date very quickly mm. um but it turns out it didn't date at all because a group of non-Indigenous socialists trying to make a call on which way they should advocate on this kind of yes-no decision, most of which sort of were hesitant to make a call at all. Mm. That's that's kind of a timeless part of um, trying to come up with a position on any political issue. Mm. So that was sort of like a, I was a bit nervous about a number of things like that in the book, but... Um, yeah, a lot of those things, they weren't as, like, specifically time-focused as they thought they were because it's human behaviour, you know. So, mm. yeah, but definitely a risk to be to know that you think you're, everything you write is going to date. So it was yeah. kind of a challenge as a writer to kind of not shy away from that and just kind of, like, be honest to the character of that time. Mm. Um, yeah, 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 if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. I want to talk about the location of this book because this is that in the – in a western suburb of Sydney, like this is literally 10 minutes away from the CBD, I suppose, like, you know, down Parramatta Road. We're not very far away at all. Yeah. Um, do you want to give people who don't know the area just a little picture of what that kind of uh, part of the city is like and also some of the issues about living that close to the city are at the moment? Yeah, Holston Park is really, it's, I find it really interesting and kind of unique in the way that it's sort of, it's kind of in between all the different developments in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sort of sits between these two main road, a bunch of different main roads, a bunch of different intersections, um, and a large part of it is being cleared out and turned into these pretty bland, cheap apartment blocks um, and refurb sort of setups. But there's all these little straggling buildings, which you know, developer hasn't quite got the money to knock it all down yet, or the DA application isn't going through. Um, the street that the house is set on, there really is only two uh, standalone houses left on that street. 
um, you know, in the book I change it to one, but, but <laughs> for like narrative purposes. But yeah, it's it's kind of this place where it's it's sort of going more and more high density, but it's lagging. Mm. Um, it's not a destination place like like Marrickville, which is just down the road, or even to Dulwich Hill Village, which is mm-hmm. one suburb over and has like a quite thriving centre, but it has these these like ghosts of the old suburb that used to be there. You know, like there's the the kebab shop, which is nothing's there anymore. There's the the old tobacconist, there's the old mm-hmm. um grocer, there's the old upholsterer, and it's it's all vacant and it's waiting to be cleared. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, it was just this really interesting part of Sydney to write about because it seems you drive through it, it's so nondescript. There's nothing clearly uh, there's nothing that's sitting there for you to write about other than yeah. the fact that it's not there to be written about. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's kind of like it's sort of the inner west and it's, it kind of isn't. Like it is geographically based, but you, um, it's not like full of inner, inner city creative kids or anything. Mm. It's just a straggling, straggling kind of suburb in the process of being gentrified with no real gentrification, no will of gentrification going on. So it's sort of um yeah yeah it's hard for me to draw the picture of it it's like read read the book (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah it's just kind of sitting in between a lot of things I think yeah definitely one of the things that I guess this book gets you to explore is this kind of thing that I think affects especially Sydney and Melbourne at the moment is the unbelievable cost of living um and especially with real estate because people are just not able to afford um the ability to to rent things uh, or buy things, especially, and people living with their parents, their share housing, like in this book, um, in often really shitty mold covered places. Yeah. Do you want to talk about like some of those issues that you cover in the book, just in terms of like, especially young people like us, young people like us, young middle aged people like us, who um, <laughs> who, who I'll, struggle. I'll take yeah. yeah, exactly. I'll take young too. Who struggle in this environment, and especially in this weird kind of political landscape as well, because like we're talking about the voice referendum, um, at the moment, Australia has this weird scenario where we have a Labor government elected in pretty much every state except Tasmania, every state and territory, I think, except Tasmania. Um, and yet still, like, we just go back to these basic issues of um, of things like Indigenous rights and, and you know, cost of living stuff, but and nothing's kind of changed. But in this book, you do get to kind of... Uh, I guess in a way celebrate the the federal government win for Anthony Albanese, um, which happens in 2022 as well. But do you want to talk about some of those political things that you bring up in the book? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it is that sort of that I wanted to get home was, and I remember this when the, so when the Magpie wing got listed for that award, um, I got an interview with a local paper and the journalist, this was just after the ALP won the federal election, and she was like, you and your generation must be so happy to have Anthony Albanese in power. Mm. And I was like, no. They're <laughs> 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 like, yeah, sure, it's like better than the alternative, but I think we're all a bit wise to it now. And, like, we mm. saw the campaign that he put together, which was, trying to have the image of a radical campaign while promising nothing and if anything like promising constantly placating the right that Mm. he actually wasn't going to do anything like he wasn't going to um suppress 
profits or anything. He wasn't going to give young people an easier easier run in life, but mm -hmm. but also like maybe he could if you vote for him. Right. And um, you know, like that yes campaign was was very similar. It was like a, we're going to radically change the lives of Indigenous Australians forever with this thing, so just vote yes. But mm. also, it's not going to do anything, so if you're racist, don't worry about it. Like, yeah. you can just vote yes because it doesn't actually do anything. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. And it's like, this is the approach of the, of like, you know, quotation marks Labour Party in Australia. Yeah. Which it. is, and it's, it's the same in the UK and it's, you know, similar with the Democrats in the US. Like, most of the Anglosphere has this kind of, leftist government approach which is to just try to pretend they're the thing that they used to be or you know arguably used to be or used to promise to be while delivering very little mm. um so yeah the book when it talks about like the conditions of, of the rental market the fact that they can't really go anywhere else mm. even if they wanted to except for the two characters whose family is quite wealthy yeah. um yeah, these kind of like inequalities which aren't being discussed as inequalities, these like political approaches. Um, and I think it was actually my mum said this to me when she finished it. She was like, um, like her and her friend were talking about the book. And it was like it's a, they, they sort of agreed that that was the picture they were kind of missing for like this generation of like why we're so fed up mm. um, and a bit over it and a bit deflated and depleted. Yeah. Um, and just kind of stuck in this no man's land. Um, mm. Matt Sini, who runs the Getting Lit Pod, uh, just called it like a holding pattern. Mm. Um, though we all know that there's nothing to wait for. Um, yeah. So the book, so it's a real existential book, I think. Um, mm. And that kind of like everyone's waiting and pushing, everyone's waiting and pushing for something in all their different directions. But yeah. it's just this like, yeah, like this like wavering sphere <laughs> of tension that just kind of doesn't really resolve. And that's mm -hmm. how I feel like, yeah, living as a renter in Sydney mm. um, and working full time and kind of like my savings aren't going up. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm working like five to six days a week and they're just like stationary. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. It's a really bizarre feeling. It's so funny because this book resonated with, with me so much, especially in the um, – this post this weekend, like with the mm. voice referendum, because I was discussing with this a friend with a friend uh, that the fact is that this whole voice thing, I think it was almost like this politics of gesture or politics of like communication where you could say something that sounded really meaningful, but essentially mm. meant fuck all. And yes. yep. that was the kind of thing where you could say something that sounded really meaningful. No one understood what you're saying. But for the people who were on the left who kind of liked that kind of thing, it was placating for the Aboriginals, you know, maybe they thought they were getting some recognition, but everyone else like was just like, what the fuck is this? And I think it was always going to fail. It's kind of one of those things where, you know, the prime minister can just go, well, it's your fault. It's not my fault. I didn't yeah. think it badly. It's your yeah. fault. I made the gesture. You were the ones who got it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that that's another, another thing, which is, I don't think it's unique to our time, but it's very, very, very prevalent. Mm. Is these like losing, losing governments or like losing um, efforts, and they're not taking any responsibility for it. Yeah, um, that was like when when Labor lost the election the last time mm. um, under Bill Shorten. It was like every everything he was saying was this garbled mess of, <laughs> of words, and, and it was just like no one knows what you stand for. 
Yeah. Because it's just everything's been workshopped to kind of like mm. put asterisks on every point. Yeah. And so they've tried to simplify the message now. And so they simplified, you know, like all the different layers of this of constitutional recognition and advisory panel mm. to the word yes. And then also came with this very condescending approach. It's like if you don't say yes, you are wrong. Mm. Um, and even like some of these campaigners were kind of like, go like talk to your friends and family. And if they say no, like you fucking make them say yes. But yeah. And then when they lose because their strategy was poor. Mm. Yeah. Like you said, it's like, oh, it's your fault. It's not me. It's not yeah. us. Um, and it's really maddening because it's sort of, yeah, I, I, I think you could see it a mile away and you could mm. see it um, very clearly. And it's, it's just this bizarre thing where it's just like, um, I'm just like some dipshit, but like I feel like I know more than the Australian Labor Party about how to run a campaign now for some reason. Sure. Yeah. You know, like like am I crazy? Are we crazy? Yeah. That's a, that's the a thing with this this campaign. And for those people who are listening from overseas, we're probably talking complete garbage to you. But essentially, the idea of this campaign was to recognize the Indigenous people in the Constitution. But unfortunately, this message got completely confused because what they decided to call it was a voice to Parliament, where they would have um, this enshrined. Uh, ability to have an advocacy body, I guess, to to represent them. But it was all couched in this language. And the language was a voice to parliament, which nobody understood. Nobody was able to clarify what it meant because until they actually got it changed in the constitution, they couldn't change any legislation, which is complete bullshit anyway, because they could have legislated all of this stuff anyway. And to just put it out there to the public and in this way, in this couch language, I think was just always deemed to be a gesture only and and that's yeah, what it was yeah. and you know like a lot of these things and i think um a lot of these political figures who want to be of the left but they're they're kind of not they're a part of an institution which is just trying to uphold the center or, or like the status quo like albanese he just wants to get he just kind of like want feels like he just wants to get his photo in the highlight reel of the 2020s <laughs> like he kind of wants that like you know like keating's speech at redfern like mm. he wants that he wants to be an indigenous affairs guy um without actually being an indigenous affairs guy so he just wants a highlight video clip for the for the newsreels yeah. um yeah it's like we, we live in a real image first world and uh everything's yeah. politics by committee yeah politics by committee and then like a photo on the front which makes it which ignores the committee and <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, right. well, here we are, you know, here we exactly. are. All right. We should get back to your book though. That like, I think this is all extremely relevant to your book because I think you really cover all of this stuff. Um, and I think it just brings up so many issues that we have in our current society, even though I don't think it's really an issues based novel, but I think it's, it's a, it's all of this stuff is at work in play in the background of the book. But one of the really fun things you get to do, within this book is explore some of the things that I know you're really passionate about, like rugby league and zines and the underground music and stuff like that. But do you want to tell us about rugby league and, and the, the depth you go into, like into rugby league in this competition, especially with Rocco's story? Yeah. So, so the first book rugby league was very present mm. and because it was present at the start of the book and the title kind of riffed on the rugby league club, the kids supported mm. um, that was, Without, it was like no real effort on my part or like the publisher's part. It really got sold as kind of like this sports novel. Mm. Like it felt like I had this like, yeah, this rugby league novel feel. Mm. But um, that was really just like 
the kids supported a football team growing up and it kind of mm. like informed the difference between them and the people they met in the inner city, which, yeah, I guess for overseas listeners, rugby league is kind of like historically tied to the working class because it broke off from rugby union, which was historically tied to like private school university elites. Mm. Uh, it was like a pay dispute type thing. So it has these like defining lines. But for this book, because the rugby league doesn't come in until Rocco comes in, he doesn't come in until about like a third of the way in, I think. Mm. Um, but I wanted to pick up more about what it is to be a part-time rugby league player mm. um, now, um, which is like you, you do get paid a little bit, but it's not very much and it's very conditional. And it's kind of like a um, uh, almost like a labour hire type arrangement. We get paid mm. match payments. Um and like lots of like opportunities dangled in front of you kind of distantly. So um, I thought it was really interesting to ex- keep exploring rugby league in a different way mm-hmm. through a, um, someone who plays the sport and then tries to coexist with a bunch of like, yeah, punks and, <laughs> and academics and, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, like, like people who will work and paycheck to paycheck and kind of like fitting him in yeah. with that environment was, was something that I really wanted to explore and thought would be really interesting. Um, yeah, because the presence of that sport, even in the house, sort of like it brings him closer to Helen and Sonny because they they follow it too. And mm-hmm. and it brings him like a little bit closer to Beth because Beth at least sort of understands it. But mm-hmm. the other two being from like a wealthy eastern suburbs um, background, it's like barely know what the sport is at all. So, yeah. yeah, like it was much more of a, yeah, can I use this as a dividing line between people almost? One of the... My favourite scenes in this book is a scene where um, Rocco and Helen are out the backyard. They have a nice big backyard where they play music quite often loudly to the to, like the horror of the neighbours. But um, one of the scenes that I really love is Helen and Rocco just outside passing a footy around and just chatting. But like using footy, I guess, as a way to join these characters, I thought was really like a really rich uh, aspect of the book. Oh, that's good. I like that. I really like Rocco and Helen's friendship mm-hmm. in the book too which sort of isn't really like remarked on at any point but yeah I think they've got like a really nice little bond like that like being able to pass a footy around and just kind of understand each other yeah I think it's really sweet yeah that's really nice I want to talk about the east-west divide in Sydney because in your first book I suppose you explored more of the divide between the outer west of Sydney in areas like Liverpool um which is further out uh it's I guess Usually uh, it's probably more heavily uh, populated by immigrants and it's it's very diverse. It's also lower socioeconomic kind of areas. Um, in this book, you are in the inner west to more of a degree. Do you want to talk about that divide between that, I guess, the east and inner west and also that like far out west kind of aspect of Sydney and how it works in this book? Yeah, it sort of has a different... I think it's not, obviously the first book, it's so present because there's mm-hmm. a character who sort of advocates for Western Sydney separatism. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like like a huge part of the first book is mm-hmm. um, in a way kind of satirising the Western Sydney novel as well, mm-hmm. that first book, whereas this one's very much just a, a kind of, it is it is an inner city novel, but like we were saying before about Holston Park, it's like mm-hmm. it's kind of almost in a no place, whereas yeah. it's like, in terms of the way, not in terms of it is a no place, but the way that like your um, Channel 9 journalists would look at it, it's sort of, you wouldn't call it the NOS, you wouldn't call it Western Sydney, you wouldn't call it 
anything. And there's sort of this like period, this uh, region around Helston Park, Canterbury, uh, Ashfield through to Croydon, Five Dock. Mm. There's just kind of like massive little old suburbs, which kind of haven't been given that identity by uh, government committee that yeah. <laughs> the, the Western Sydney has. Um, yeah. yeah. And so the divide there, I guess, is kind of like like this post-lockdown lingering feeling, which kind of happens between the books. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Alice and Nathan, uh, Alice's dad lives in Wallara on the eastern suburbs and they had a pretty famously chilled lockdown mm-hmm. where they were kind of like able to go to the beach and, yeah. um, you know, like it was still like difficult, um, but like Western Sydney had like police curfew, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, in no small part due to like, uh there was definite like there was definite a racist aspect to that because i remember yeah. i was working at weatherall park at the time um and and i know that a lot of the people there like they had parks locked down for a while they had um you know they had more of a melbourne style lockdown in the western yeah. suburbs because you know like god forbid like the muslims should get together and do something or you know oh yeah it was know. yeah it was just it was very much there was a racist divide uh between yeah. the, you know extraordinarily prejudiced yeah for sure um, and and prejudice to the point of like, oh, you can trust people in the eastern suburbs because like, yeah, yeah, they they know what to do. That's right. <laughs> they know how to behave. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's that other element which was talked about a lot at the time, and I don't talk about it much in the book, but mm. a lot of people in Western Sydney um, commute to work in the inner city to mm. as cooks and and cleaners mm. and um, you know gig economy workers like kind of driving mm. around the city. So a large portion of the tension around that lockdown was like they had to travel and risk being sick to get to work and also Mm -hmm. weren't allowed to leave the area unless they had like special permission Mm -hmm. um, and were also being like stopped constantly um yeah so i guess that you know like beth is from leppington and like far southwest as well and Mm -hmm. um, yeah there's definitely well they didn't have a lot of the stuff on the page um definitely wrote a lot of that stuff into the character's own yeah anxieties and um yeah kind of like best almost like claustrophobia um around like yeah trying to stay healthy and Mm. make her bar shifts that kind of thing yeah one of the other things in this novel that I find really interesting is that kind of really slow gentrification of these inner inner western suburbs of Sydney because you have areas like Marrickville and St Peter's and all these places that and you bring this up in the book that are all getting these little, you know, distilleries and breweries, like, you know, uh, through on planning permits, like this previously really industrial areas are all like, you know, being being changed and being upgraded. Um, but this suburb in the book uh, and a few of those suburbs in that area just clearly haven't got the same, maybe it's a zoning permissions or whatever, but mm. they, they are still kind of stuck in this weird, like no man's land, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, um, it's really interesting because I, I live, I don't live in Holston Park. I live a suburb over in Summer Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of, it's a really weird feeling. Like you have to walk 15 minutes to get to a shop, to get yeah. to, um, you know, to get your groceries, to mm-hmm. even like to get a beer or something like that. 15 mm-hmm. minutes isn't a big deal. But, you know, like these suburbs, they used to be every corner you'd have your corner store mm. <laughs> and like all those things have been gentrified out and they're like little um architecture firms or whatever yeah or like you know hip little rentals oh, sorry not in sorry not rentals hip little houses for people to live in yeah they, they own it um 
but it's kind of like that next step isn't coming. Yeah. Um, because instead it's going to get plonked full of more apartments and high density housing. So it's sort of, yeah, Sydney, I know this is very common everywhere, but it, like Sydney is a really cutthroat place where developers have a lot of free reign. Yeah. Um, and these kind of things aren't, they're not planned. Mm. Um, or, or if they are, they're planned very poorly. Yeah. I find that especially post-COVID driving through areas like that of Sydney, like there is just empty shops everywhere. There's like yeah. these kind of, they're like, they're almost like ghost towns in a way. Like they just feel like there's nothing there. Um, like a lot of the development stopped over COVID as well. So a lot of the, a lot of projects just didn't get continued, didn't get completed. Um, yeah, lots of stuff just empty. Yeah, a lot of building sites. And yeah. I think it's like because a big portion of this book, the next book I'm writing is going to be a lot more about this, about space. Mm-hmm. Um, but like all these characters really, the, the, the main thing that's like why they settle for this house, even though they can't really find anywhere else, is that like there's space to do everything they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Alice can garden, Sonny can like run his like archive, sorry, Sonny can run their archive. Mm-hmm. Um, all the characters want just want this room to do the thing they're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and this house kind of prom- is a false promise for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like what you're saying about all these like empty shop fronts, um, they would all kill to have one of those empty shop fronts. And those yeah. shop fronts will sit there for fucking five years mm-hmm. or more indefinitely until it turns into an apartment. Yeah. Um, so it's one of these weird things about Sydney is there's no no bargain is being made between these, um, what's the word, like contradictions, I guess. Mm. Um, and a lot of like the simple answers are just kind of like, if you're going to have a building site sitting there for six years, just clear up the bottom room and yeah. like, let them have their factory. <laughs> yeah. Like let them have a social center or something like, yeah. like let, let us have a space in the meantime. Mm. Um, yeah. And there's no will for that. It's just kind of like everyone has to be kept um, in little capsules and, and working. And yeah, That's it's right. a real, it's so normal that you like I don't you don't see it very much, but like mm-hmm. it's not so obvious to you. But it's quite dystopian, like this city or like lots of cities like this. I think mm. definitely. I want to talk about Sunny a bit more because, like you said, like he uses his garage to um, make a lot of the other things that you know that you're passionate about, uh, like zines. Um, in the book, you sent me like I've got like this lovely little zine that you made up. Um, oh, yeah. epilogue to the book which is really cool but um and Sonny uses like the the garage to make zines and also to to create kind of this archive of um of music that kind of like just of bands that kind of disappeared do you want to just tell us about exploring that whole scene of of kind of that underground music and in the zine world yeah sure so so a lot of that comes from my own mm. like uh yeah passions and thoughts and feelings like I like I make yeah make my own zines and tapes um so Sunny was a character I, I could sort of explore some of that with but um like Sunny's big driving thing coming out of the COVID period because they would have been very active in bands or at least somewhat active in bands leading up to that lockdown like as mm. I was too I uh, was playing in two or three bands at the time yeah and then lockdown just pretty much decimated that for us mm. Um, so Sonny's real thing is like no one's keeping track of the last 20 years of music um, or underground music because pop music is taking taking a lot of the spaces that underground music used to fill. Mm-hmm. Um, so their whole thing is like let's 
make an archive and let's get all the tapes, digitize it, make it openly available and just like email me your old recordings. Mm. Like email me everything you've got and um, I'll, I'll put it together. Um, but they're very strict in how they want it to be done. Um, and a lot of their thinking comes from Walt's thinking from the first book because they were really close, mm. um, was to try, try and get this like pure music untouched by like careerist ambition or like yeah. untouched by the market like and just um, music for music's sake, which was kind of made by and for a community, um, which is impossible <laughs> because yeah. everyone has little different re- different ideas of what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so a lot of Sonny's agitation is to try and like capture all this stuff and preserve it while while it's there because they know that it's gonna it's gonna go and it could be, could be forgotten at any moment. The moment it gets forgotten. Um, it'll get swamped by something else, mm. um, which is, I think, you know, like that's, I wanted to get a lot of that stuff off my chest when it came yeah. to like my ideas around DIY, the DIY kind of imperative with like punk music and, that, and experimental music. Yeah. But it's also, I think what a lot of us are feeling just generally looking back over the last 20 years, it's like this blur of time. And I don't know if you feel the same way or, if other people feel the same way, but it's like feels like we're running out of time mm-hmm. to do the things we wanted to do. Um, and every moment we don't move on something, it gets perverted or changed and turned into something else. Yeah. Uh, and then part of that's like a bit of a parallel to uh, the gentrification of the city as well. Like mm-hmm. uh, there's a few moments in the book where they're kind of like, oh, that warehouse where you used to do acid and like watch these like wild punk bands. Mm-hmm. Um you know, for five bucks with like long necks in our bag mm. at a craft brewery now. Yeah. And the reason it got shut down is because people were drinking unlicensed and now everyone's like rolling over <laughs> themselves on these like triple IPAs, which I like, I like to drink a triple IPA and get like way too drunk than I should be at three yeah. in the afternoon, but mm. it's such an ironic turn. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. I think you make that point really well in the book because there are all these bands that just, you know, for whatever reason, um, they just stop and, you know, we have a band in the book and, and, you know, for whatever reason, it just stops because, you know, people have kids, people get married. Um, there's just this kind of, I guess, these factors that don't allow people to continue these creative drives unless they have some kind of commercial success. And, yeah, and I think that's the kind of thing where it would be so lovely to have the ability to do creative things without the imperative of commercial success. And in this book, I think you've tried to kind of try to get to that point and um and illustrate that point really well oh, i'm glad that came came through on some level because yeah. yeah it's something i like yeah i think about a lot yeah yeah cool i want to ask you after this book and like to make three books in a year like we said before recording was crazy but do you think you'll go straight back into something next yeah i started writing another one and um Yes, yeah, so this was yeah. This Paradise Estate is kind of a sequel. is It is a sequel to the Magpie Wing. Yeah. Um, and I kind of want to continue that story, mm. um, in one way or another. Um. So yeah, I really want to try and the first two, but they're very cynical books. And like Paradise Estate is yeah, like I was saying before, it's like this existential hum of like, mm. like not being able to quite get anywhere and yeah you know like it's got a very circular structure too it's like everyone 
No, it's not, I don't think it's much of a spoiler, but everyone pretty much starts ends where they started. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like this big loop. Um, that's a that's a thing with rental as well. Like the funny thing is, yeah, right, like this whole economy of of the rent market is basically, you know, if you live in a place like they're living in, you know that at some point the person who owns the place is going to go. I'm going to sell this to a developer, yeah, or I'm going to um, or I'm going to move my family in because they're coming back from overseas and they've got kids or whatever it is. And so it's all this kind of, this transient kind of space. And, and that's what comes across in the book is like, it's all temporary. Yeah. 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 So that's kind of like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to do with this book, mm. but um, I really kind of want to get, because when I was writing, like there's like some of the bigger efforts in the book to like do something mm. quite big and make like a big message. It's like, as they water the idea down to reality, which is part of like as I was writing it, like when I would the first draft would be like, yeah, this thing happens, and they like they do this thing, um, but then it just kind of didn't pass the when I read it over again. It's like that would never happen. So yeah, like trying to fetter it back down to kind of reality. Yeah. And so the third book, um, I kind of want to pick up talk about very similar things, but really get down to like where are examples that this does work or has worked. Mm. And so yeah, like Rocco. Um, talks a lot about his time in the Italian squats and the social centres. Yeah. And these are like, I went to visit some last year, got a friend in Milan, Giacomo, mm -hmm. and he showed me around some of these like occupied social centres. Oh, and they're yeah. amazing. They've just been, it's just a, a building which these um, anarchists occupied in the 80s. Yeah. And it's still running, like just wow. on the on the breath of volunteers and those punk bands come through and they play there, they teach like English classes to migrants coming through. They teach people drums. They sort of like organise rallies. Mm. Um, and it's just an embedded part of Milan society and the kind of like beneath the surface. Yeah. Um, so like a lot of the next book I think will be set in one of those kind of places. Okay. Um, and also some historical equivalents here in Sydney as well. Um, and maybe if I can make it work, like efforts to establish something like that here as well. Oh, that sounds cool. So sounds it's going to be, cool. I think, a little bit more like, yeah, can I push this into an optimistic direction? Yeah. Because <laughs> those okay. first two books, like, like I really like them. I think they're funny and the satire is, is interesting. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's like they're deeply cynical novels. Some, um, Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So can I break cynicism for, for a third book? Yeah. I don't know if I can write another one in 18 months because, like, my body and brain have suffered so much <laughs> like working full time and writing a fucking novel in 18 months was hell. Yeah. But it was really fun. So yeah, maybe I'll do 24 months minimum for the next. Okay. Yeah. There's a few places in Sydney where I think it would be so good to set up some kind of like anarchist like community. My dad lives near this. Um, it's, it's a water reservoir and there's like two really old water reservoirs there. And it's basically just empty space and it's all blocked off by the water, water board of Sydney. Yeah. Um, you can never get in there. I've jumped over the fence a few times just to have a walk around and like, just there's nothing there. It's, but it's um, be a great place for like a concert venue or like open it up to the public. Like, come on, Sydney. Yeah. Like, like just, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Know, like that, that's the kind of stuff where you just go, look, it's empty space. There's no danger of people being in there. It's mm. all safe. It's a great place to be. It's public space. What about fucking golf courses? Like, why don't you just shut down some golf courses? Like, make that like a space for people. 
Yeah, yeah. Or the clubhouse, you know. Like yeah. there's been a few times where like the punk communities like set up shows at the golf club, like the bowling club in Marrickville is like a real famous spot, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there's all these opportunities to share space. Yeah. Um, and to kind of be a part of an ecosystem together. But um yeah. Yeah, it's just sort of yeah. I don't know. Obviously, if it doesn't make any money, it's <laughs> of interest to no one from like the authorities' perspective. So yeah, it's constantly running up against that. Yeah. All right. Good luck. I'll be in. Yeah. Cool. I'll, I'll yeah. see you at the social center. <laughs> Done. Exactly. Cool. I'll bring my handcuffs. Sweet. <laughs> All right. Before I let you go, because you got another podcast to do, actually, we should plug it. What podcast are you going on next? Uh, Getting Lit podcast. So last week we talked about Paradise Estate and um, yeah, yeah, Matt had a had a guest cancel. So we're going to talk about Giorgio De De Maria's Twenty Days of Turin. I've got that. I'm going to grab that book. It's right on my shelf here. Oh, cool! You got it. Yeah, yeah. Such a good book. It's wild. It's like like I was. There was a point I got about you know maybe a quarter of the way through, and I was like getting really spooked around the house my girlfriend was just like maybe you should stop reading this book for a little while yeah. <laughs> like yeah really good ghost story and um yeah yeah i loved it okay well plug for that podcast it is a really fun podcast i do enjoy it i highly recommend it but give us the give us a quick blurb on 20 days of turin so it's set in the like late 70s turin um and it's kind of so it's in the way it's like an allegory for a lot of the politically charged violence that was happening in the north of Italy at that time. So there was uh, sort of the occasional left-wing assassination attempts on, uh, like, I guess, like, post-fascist, neo-fascists, and then really hard clampdowns, mm. um, you know, like stooge bombings where, like, fascist groups would bomb a centre and then the cops would pin it on some, like, local anarchist kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's in the wake of that, but it's set up as, like, the 20 days of trend that no one talks about. Yeah. And it was like this period of mass insomnia where people would walk the streets and then all these like ghostly things would happen where they just kind of, people would disappear or they get mutilated mm. um, by some like ghostly, ghastly creature kind of thing. And it also happened around this time where during the 20 days of Turin, these kids set up this little library, which was made up not of books, but like people's personal diary entries and letters. And you could pay to read the letters and then you could pay to contact the author. And then because people were making all these deep confessions, um, created this like atmosphere of suspicion and silence and fear and anxiety. Um, and then amongst all this, there's, yeah, sightings of these creatures picking people up by the feet and mm. lobbing each other against each other. And, yeah, it's kind of around this guy who's trying to investigate the 20 days, but no one wants to talk to him about it. Mm. Um, and then yeah just kind of builds and builds and builds from there and yeah it's yeah. it's really good I haven't yeah. read a book and enjoyed it at all for a really long time but that was one that was just like <laughs> like I'm back <laughs> I'm enjoying yeah. reading again you know yeah did you did you recommend that book to me I don't know okay. um maybe we talked about it at some point yeah, I know we did talk about a couple of Italian authors. It but... might have been someone else because um, maybe. yeah, I only yeah. read it maybe like a month ago. Oh, okay. Wow. There you go. There you go. Well, I'm glad we both found it together because I loved it. It's such a good book.
Cool. Yeah, I think it was yeah, great. Yeah, I'd love to be able to write ghost stories, but <laughs> but I'm too I'm too easily frightened. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that, are there any other books you can recommend that you're reading at the moment? Uh, what am I reading at the moment? So I'm just trying to look through my piles of books. I'm trying to get back on track with reading because I've just been stuck in writing mode and reading to write. Uh, I read George Haddad's Losing Face okay. recently. Um, it's really good. It was a really good Southwestern Sydney novel, mm. really close to where I grew up, um, really accurately portrayed sort of like the issues in between young men. Um, yeah, some pretty like pretty harrowing stuff, but like stuff that I was pretty close to experiencing a lot through my upbringing. That was a really good book. Mm. Um, what else? Brownie Doyle's Why We Are Here. Yeah. Um, that was really good, really close to thematically to what a lot of the stuff that I was doing with Paradise Estate. And we were kind of writing it around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a friend of mine. Um, so it was pretty funny to like bump into each other every few months and be like, oh, you're writing about that too. <laughs> yeah. But in a very different approach. Like, mm. yeah. Uh, but yeah, very in the narrator's head. Um, I'm trying to think what else I've read recently. Trying to read some more Kathy Acker. Yeah. Um, I'm reading Empire of the Senseless now. Um, I was just finding it hard to get through because it's like quite, yeah, a lot of incest and uh, and rape, which is like a ongoing Kathy Acker theme. Right. Um, yeah. One of those things where I just, I don't really want to be reading it in bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to be like, like I almost want to put on a suit and um, like <laughs> hose myself down before I read it, you know? Yeah. But yeah, she's great. Like I Blood and Guts in High School is like one of the coolest books I've ever read. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. Very cool. All right. Well, I should probably wrap it up with you. Congratulations again on Paradise Estate. Before I let you go, do you want to tell us where we can grab the book and also where we can go and find you online? Sure. If you're in Australia, Paradise Estate, you can get direct from the publisher at Giramondo. Um, or it's in pretty much every bookshop except a couple that I've walked into. So it's easy, pretty easy to ask for, I think. Um, yeah, and if you're overseas, it's sort of a bit more difficult because of the postage costs, but probably direct to publisher, I think, would be the cheapest way to get it. Are they, um, are they distributing it overseas? Like, will you get an overseas publisher? Uh, I don't know. I think, yeah. you know, it's like a complicated thing with selling the rights yeah. to a publisher based overseas, okay. um, which is, I think, notoriously difficult for Australian books. Especially like I'm a pretty small mm. writer writing with niche topics. So um, I don't have like a big social media profile or anything. So it's a bit hard to sell it, I think. They do have like there's an ebook version from Jeremondo, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet. So, if you like so e-book, get the ebook. Yeah, yeah, get, get the e-book. e-book. There's an audio book coming at some point too. Okay. Um, who's who's the ebook read by? I mean, yeah, audiobook. Uh, she's an actor named Gemma Carfee. She's really good. She did the first one and did a really good job. And like the continuity I thought would be really nice. Cool. I should mention the cover yeah. as well because the cover's spectacular. It's really cool. Yeah, I love it. I think that's um, – I love the first cover too, but uh, mm. this one is just – it's so much more colourful and vibrant. I think it's – yeah, the early interest in this book is definitely coming from the colour and the shapes of the cover, I think. <laughs> Where should we catch up with you online? Oh, yeah, I've got a Twitter account, which I, which is there, but I don't use it very often. It's just at Max Easton two underscores 
Um, I've got a Substack which I use occasionally for like Q and A's with DIY types, and I sell some tapes and zines through there as well. Yeah, that's mebaileyhuman.substack.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you can email me too. That's max at baileyhuman.info. Awesome. Okay. Well, pleasure to speak with you, Max. Congratulations again on the book, and I can't wait till we catch up in Sydney again. Yeah, likewise. It'll be fun. We'll go to a uh, ex rehearsal space warehouse venue and have a few um craft Triple beer IPAs, yeah. yeah 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 i look awesome. forward to the day awesome talk to you soon max see you mate have a good night thanks once again to max easton check out the show notes for all the details you can find us on x and instagram at beyond zero pod and we're on blue sky at beyond zero Email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon. Bye.